You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. It isn't Halloween season anymore, but that's not going to stop us, Wade, from offering up a special haunting episode of the show this week. You know, Kevin, we're going to be looking at Mike Flanagan's newest horror picture, Dr. Sleep, and I just hope our review doesn't put our listeners to sleep. (laughs) Fingers crossed, as always. We're also going to be reviewing Paul Harrell's follow-up to his 2014 film Something Anything, the Jim Gaffigan starring Light from Light. It's ghouls and ghosts on this episode, episode 225 of Seeing and Believing. You're magic, like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place, a dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. magic i i always called it the shining we are here episode 225 kevin can you believe it we are one fourth of the way to 1000 that's got to be something (laughs) well we're almost uh the all that way we still got 25 episodes Until we get there, but you know what? Who's counting, really? I, I got so excited. I didn't even think. I just I just thought, oh, 25, one-fourth, but that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Good thing I'm, I'm a film critic and not a mathematician, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you, you, you know what? No judgment. I was an English major in college, so, you know, what a, math is not my strong suit either, shall we say. Hmm, yeah, well— we are at 225. I that feels special. It feels like a nice fun number. Uh so we'll <laughs> we'll celebrate, we'll celebrate that. So we are halfway to 450 and then one fourth of the way to 900. So that's that's still a pretty big deal. Still pretty good. Like I think that is still an impressive percentile to be in. Yeah. I I mean I'm I'm tooting my own horn, so I'm excited about that. And also, you mentioned it earlier. This is kind of a late Halloween episode because right now we've got a couple movies about ghosts, which is which is really interesting for November. Yeah, it was pretty careless of Paul Harrell and Mike Flanagan to release their films a couple of weeks late, you know. But, you know, we do what we can, Wade. We we roll with mm. the punches here on Seeing and Believing. <laughs> yes, and as a result, this week's episode does begin with a look at Mike Flanagan's newest horror venture, Dr. Sleep. Based off the book by Stephen King, Dr. Sleep is the sequel to the author's 1977 bestseller, The Shining. This film now catches up with Danny, played by Ewan McGregor, decades after the events at the Overlook Hotel, as he seeks to protect a young girl from a cult, led by Rebecca Ferguson's Rose the Hat, set on obtaining immortality. Now, Flanagan, who made his name with popular horror properties like Hush, Oculus, and Netflix's 2018 The Haunting of Hill House, faces no easy task with this project. For one, Dr. Sleep is a sequel to one of the most esteemed horror films of all time, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. In another sense, Dr. Sleep could also rightly be considered less of a follow-up to Kubrick's project and more influenced by King's work. The author himself was publicly against Kubrick's version of The Shining, as we all know. All of this makes for sort of a kind of an interesting look at sequels, literature to film adaptations, and of course, artistic interpretation. Kevin, I want to go ahead and just start there. The relationship between Kubrick's The Shining and King's book, as well as his vision for these stories. How do you feel about Flanagan's relationship between this film and Kubrick's quote-unquote original? 
Well, this is kind of an interesting case because famously one of the reasons that King himself didn't like Kubrick's adaptation was that he felt that Kubrick drained it of its emotional center as King saw it and replaced it basically took the same material but told a completely different story with different themes. And with Dr. Sleep, Mike Flanagan's version, it seems almost as if it's continuing the events as they were told in Kubrick's adaptation, but it's telling a story that has the heart of King's The Shining. So it's it's this weird mishmash where the, the plot events correspond to the screen version that, that most people have seen, but its overall perspective feels a lot more simpatico with the way King always thought of the story and the events surrounding the Overlook Hotel. So that it makes it an interesting beast. And I guess really that would be the most interesting thing about this film to me. I really didn't like this this movie. And we can get into why, I'm sure. Um, but I think it's instructive to look at both versions of The Shining, both King's book and Kubrick's adaptation, and set them next to this movie and see all the ways in which they're different. Full disclosure, I actually am not the biggest fan of Kubrick's adaptation. It's I don't find it particularly scary, but even more than that, it does feel almost as if Kubrick isn't really interested in horror as horror. He's more It's more like a, a parody of a horror movie. Everything is heightened in a direction that I think makes it ineffective as a horror film and not particularly engaging on any other grounds as well. That's just my personal opinion. I do prefer King's novel a little bit better, but regardless of how you feel about either version, one thing that you that is true of both of them is that they do have... They're, they're both about something very specific. With King's version, it's sort of like the haunting at the Overlook Hotel is... And, and the way that it acts on Jack Torrance is sort of this story about addiction and fighting uh, metaphorical demons made literal by the hotel. Kubrick's version, meanwhile, is sort of telling this story that's basically about an abusive husband and father and the way that the Overlook Hotel basically gives him an excuse to fully give in to those brutal, destructive tendencies. Dr. Sleep... I don't really know what it's about. It's sort of trying to be about a lot of different things, and it feels very flat, as if Flanagan kind of gets pulled in lots of different directions at once and doesn't really tell a coherent story and doesn't really find a centering theme to build all of his spooky uh, window dressing and plot elements and character emotions around and it just kind of feels like a succession of events that lasts for two and a half hours and then just stops. And it do, it just wasn't all that satisfying to me. I am curious to know, though, Wade, if you have any thoughts about the Kubrick King version of The Shining versus this version of Dr. Sleep. So I haven't read either of the books. So I haven't read The Shining, I haven't read Dr. Sleep, and... I did go back and look at the differences between the movies. And of course, just kind of listen to Stephen King talk about how he felt regarding Kubrick's interpretation of his story. And part of that was the, was the kind of pairing of the supernatural elements. And we get more of that in this Dr. Sleep. Now, this is, this is really a tough job. For Flanagan, because he's basing this movie off of Stephen King's book, Dr. Sleep, and off of The Shining. But he has to acknowledge Kubrick's film, because when people think about The Shining, they think of Kubrick's movie. They think of Jack Nicholson. And so that causes a number of different issues, a number of different problems, one being that the Overlook is destroyed at the end of The Shining in in the book. And so that kind of changes a lot in this movie, especially in the last third. Lots of challenges. I think 
I think that Flanagan probably includes too much of Kubrick's production design and story into this picture when I think that this one could stand on its own weight. Full disclosure, you had your disclosure, Kevin. I have mine. I like this film. I I actually like it a lot. It's one of my favorite King adaptations in recent years. And obviously I don't have, I don't have the background to say, oh, it's a great adaptation of the book because I haven't read the book. I just think it's a really good movie. I think it's better than the It movies. And if you're asking what it's about, it's about death throughout the whole entire ordeal. This is about death and about characters, this cult group pining for eternal life and what that causes them to do versus characters who understand the nature of death and understand what's behind that door and embrace that mystery. So I actually really do like this a lot and I'll get into some more comments later, but I'm kind of surprised that you did not care for this movie because I think it's really good. Yeah. uh, So there is some stuff there about eternity and sort of the, the anxiety that basically every living person has at some point in their life, if not throughout their life, which is wondering, you know, what comes after I die? Uh, When death comes, will it scare me? Will I fight against it? Will I resign myself to it? There's a quote uh, where at at one point, Danny Torrance, uh, who has been struggling with his own addiction problems at the beginning of the film, finally lands at a a hospice center. And he's sort of this, this caretaker who sits with these elderly people as they essentially prepare to die. And they talk to him about their anxieties. And he says, I don't know much, but I know we don't end. Uh, the world is essentially one big hospice. We're all going to die, but it's not just ceasing to exist. There's something more out there than just death and then nothingness. And it's, it's nice to see so um, thoughtful of a treatment of death in those moments that I kind of wonder if the screenplay that Flanagan wrote himself and is directing, if it had been a little bit more focused on that theme in the same way that, say, Kubrick's film was so focused on domestic violence— that he might have spun a compelling picture out of it. I think there's just so much, there's too much in this movie, I guess, for that theme to really come through and shine the way it needs to to work. There's all this other business surrounding uh, the teenage girl whom Danny sort of befriends through their telepathic powers, who her whole thing is more about not hiding, like essentially uh, embracing her power and not being afraid to let it out and show it to other people. There's there's that element. There's uh, a running subplot of what these, these villains in the film, they're basically essence vampires, what they're doing to try to achieve eternal life. And none of it really hangs together. The, the vampire plotline that sort of drives the main action of the movie doesn't really tie in all that strongly to those bedside conversations that Danny has with the hospice patients. It doesn't tie all that strongly into Danny's troubled uh, relationship with first his father and then after, you know, the death of his father and in The Shining, the troubled relationship Danny continues with his mother. That doesn't really attached to any of the rest of the plot in a meaningful way. And maybe it could have, but it doesn't really here. So again, just for me, it doesn't feel as if Flanagan has really thought through how to harmonize all these elements into something that feels as cohesive as King's novel, The Shining, or Kubrick's adaptation of it. I I think that the pursuit of youth ties all of this together. And and just kind of a a nuts and bolts way, this does feel like a King adaptation. There are strange occurrences. There are characters who are bottling up this shine smoke and then breathing it in, and it's 
causing them to live longer. There are individuals who die and disintegrate into nothing. These, I don't even know if you would say pulpy horror tropes, but these these occurrences that you would expect in a King novel. And I think it's done pretty well. I think it's, I think it's real creepy. I think it's real entertaining. But on top of that, everything does revolve around death. And Rebecca's, Rebecca Ferguson's character, she says at one point, she says, you don't know yet what you would do for more time. And it's, it's not by accident that much of the violence in this film is done to children, which which makes it very harrowing. But it's the idea of these characters attempting to pull the youth or return to the youth that they lost. And even Danny's character is attempting to return to the innocence that he once had. And so the alcoholism, at one point he calls it the the eraser, this this accumulation of stuff that we get from life he's looking for something to erase all of that to get back to this pure form of of life that he once had and so that ties the entire movie together and i love those scenes at the hospice care center because danny really kind of helps these individuals die well and that's where, of course, he gets his name, Dr. Sleep. And that's kind of this ancient way of, of saying die. And if you really kind of think about that, almost in every culture except our own, the idea was death is one step forward. So to talk about death in terms of sleep, when you talk about sleep, well, you sleep because you are awake and then you will eventually wake up. And that's what the film is, is really kind of wrestling with, that there is something past this life. And what you have too is you have this, this cult that will do anything not to die. And it reminds you of this, uh, very naturalistic culture that, hey, this life is all there is and we will have to do anything to preserve it. Um, whereas Danny begins to realize that there is more after this. And at one point there's a character and he says, this world is a dream of a dream to me now. So the character is dead. Danny's talking to them. This world is a dream of a dream to me now. And there's something almost very, of course, religious, but almost very Christian about that, that these characters, uh, the cult characters, to achieve eternal life, to become their own quote-unquote gods, they are essentially losing their soul. But for those who see death as this transition to new life, they find this freedom. And I think it carries through everything in the movie, and it just really kind of works, not just on a plot level for me, but also kind of just on an emotional level. And I, I really thought this this picture nailed that. There, There is a thread running through the film of not quite nostalgia, but the, the sense that there's something about our modern age where there's sort of this disenchantment happening. The, you know, the, these uh, villains talking amongst each other, they talk about there being less steam out there these days. And steam is what they're, is what they call the, the supernatural powers that Danny and Abra, the his his teenage friend that who also has these powers, steam is sort of the term that gets used for their shining. And even the vampires recognize that for whatever reason, there's less steam out there these days. They're kind of starving. They're experiencing sort almost this existential crisis, like the vampires in Jim Jarmusch's only lovers left alive are experiencing. And that's coupled with this recurring motif of, you know, classic cinema showing up a couple of times in the, in the background in this film, or, uh, you know, kind of more classical feeling old timey music playing, uh, diegetically in, in the background. It's all working together to suggest this idea that, Something has been lost there. We had something in the past that is no longer accessible to us. And I would like that if there had been, again, kind of this, this focus on it instead of getting pulled away by 
storytelling beats that either don't make sense or aren't paced in a way that lets them not be distracting. So here's kind of uh, an example of what I'm talking about. There's a scene where Danny and his friend, uh, played by Cliff Curtis, they are trying to track down one of the, the the body of one of the children who has been killed by these bad guys. And they're, they're trying to locate the, the body, dig it up, and um, find a way to track the bad guys who, who did this to him. And as they're digging, you know, they're, they're kind of talking about, you know, the smell of death. And Cliff Curtis's character says it's get, at one point goes on this long tangent about how he used to be a deer hunter. And, you know, he's, he shot a deer and he tracked the deer and he eventually found the deer and the deer had died. And that scene goes on for a very long time to the point where it creates this expectation that, okay, this is going to go someplace meaningful. Like this is going to speak to the, the themes of the movie in terms of, you know, the, the longing for eternity, the, the anxiety over one's own death, uh, all of that, but it kind of just goes and goes. And then the end, Cliff Curse's character basically ends up saying, and I found the deer and it was rotting and it smelled really bad. And that's sort of like this corpse that we're about to unearth. And it was just, it, it doesn't really have any sense of flow to it or any, it doesn't seem like Flanagan really understands why this scene is in the movie, like what function it serves to build out the central thematic concern. It's just sort of in there and vaguely death-related, but it doesn't seem like it leads anywhere meaningful. It's kind of a, a cul-de-sac that redirects us onto a different road. And I feel like there's lots of little pieces of that kind of problem in this movie where there's no sense of crescendoing action or where themes don't seem to really weave into each other. There's just sort of lots of disparate threads and they're kind of all shot and presented in the same way. The death of one of the parents of a major character is kind of presented and reacted to with the same sort of flat affect that a later, the death of some of the villains in a literal gunfight is. And it just, it doesn't feel as if Mike Flanagan knows what all of this plot machinery is doing other than just padding out his runtime. I mean, I, I think there is some fat here, obviously, and I think there are some story beats that work better than others, but I, I think I think there are some moments that are understated and there's a benefit there instead of this this double underline. I I want to talk too about some of the performances. I, I think most of the performances are fine, but Rebecca Ferguson here I think is really incredible. She's she's very creepy, and there's this sort of there's this idea throughout the movie of how appearances don't always denote character, and that there is there's more than meets the eye, and she epitomizes that she is the representation of that and to see her persuasive effects as she talks to different characters and as she talks to some of the children in this film is really just kind of i mean she just does a fantastic job and i think that's why i enjoyed this movie as much as i did because usually we get the the sort of stock villain characters and it's nice to see someone as talented as Ferguson really get into this and be given some good lines. And she actually, I think she has some good lines here. Now, Brian Tallarico at RogerEbert.com uh, says he thinks this is one of her best performances. And I think it is probably one of her better performances. And she just overall elevates the movie and perhaps that's why i'm able to look past some of these oh, okay yeah i mean that didn't work as well or oh yeah that could have been cut just because it is so entertaining to watch 
and it works in this sort of creepy horror level. And it's very different from Kubrick's movie. And I think that's also to its benefit because we're, I'm not comparing either of those films because this one is its own, it's its own universe. And I think that Flanagan, for the most part, threads that needle well. Well, you're not going to get any argument from me about Rebecca Ferguson in this film. I think she's she's very good. Uh, and I think it's sort of the the sad tale of Rebecca Ferguson's career in the, in the last few years is she's routinely just this absolutely magnetic, charismatic performance in movies that don't really deserve her. I, I feel like I've seen her in a lot of mediocre to okay movies where she's just... Every time she's on screen, every minute is just, she's transfixing. And it's almost as if the surrounding film suffers by comparison. But no, she is really good. Now, you are right that Flanagan does um, explore different tonal territory than Kubrick did with The Shining, which I do appreciate. I, I mentioned already that I'm not the hugest fan of Kubrick's take on this material, but that does sort of raise the question of why Flanagan chooses to lean so heavily on some of the the touch points of The Shining. And I don't want to say exact, exactly how he does that in case uh, there's are any spoiler-averse people listening to this segment. But suffice it to say that Flanagan does make sure to include elements that we would be familiar with from The Shining in this film as well, and lingers on, to, on them to the point that you it, it, almost, it almost feels like fan service. If there's anyone out there who's wishing for a extended Shining cinematic universe, I mean, this movie is probably for them, but for anyone else, it's sort of, it feels a little bit like it's retreading some ideas where it would have been better served just employing the unique sensibility that Flanagan obviously has and having confidence in that. No, I, I, I agree to some extent. And I, I think he goes, he goes back to that more often than, than he should. And I, I think visually too, there's some really great shots. There's some fun, um, God's eye view shots that help to denote the almost a zombie like nature of this cult. I, I do think that, some of the cinematography is a little uh, trite. And in comparison to Kubrick's film, when we get some shots that are similar to his, there is a, there is a difference there. Now, I don't think the film ever uses, I'm, I'm fairly certain the film doesn't use any of Kubrick's uh, footage, um, but they do emulate that. And there definitely is this distance, even though they are emulating and it's not actually Kubrick, there, there does seem to be this distance there. Um, but overall, I, I think this is a pretty good adaptation of this type of, of story. There's, there's one other point that, that really kind of stuck out to me. This conversation that's happening between Danny's character and an individual helping out with Alcoholics Anonymous. And he asks him about church and he asks him if he attends church. And, uh, Hugh McGregor's character says, does it matter? And then eventually says, our beliefs don't make us better people. Our actions make us better people. And I talked a little bit about this with Blake Collier when we, when we discussed it chapter two, but King sort of look at religion and even Christianity. And he seems to have this, he seems to have this open mind to it all while at the same time, almost being a little bit, um, wary of organized religion. And I think we see that too. And it's something we've already hinted on the idea that there is this supernatural world and it actually might be better for us to lean into that idea versus becoming completely secularized. Uh, so I, I like some of those ideas and overall I too, I'll just go back to, I think it's a really entertaining picture. And I had a good time watching it versus many of the other kind of horror pictures that I've I've seen recently. Yeah, I I wish I could go with you down that road, but sadly I'm I'm still stuck mm. and did not enjoy it, Will. But <laughs> that's the way it goes sometimes. Listeners, if you have had a chance to see the the film that we just reviewed, 
just now. We'd love to hear from you. Obviously, Wade and I had some divergent opinions, and now we want to hear yours. Shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or send us a tweet at cbelievepod and let us know what you think. Don't go anywhere. In the second segment, we're going to be talking about Paul Harrell's Light from Light. thank all of our listeners for taking an opportunity to support the podcast to uh, really kind of help us get the disagreements going like we did in that prior segment. And I guess all of last episode too, Kevin, we disagreed on both movies and it wouldn't have been possible without our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners truly are what keep the discord and arguments going on seeing and believing. Yeah. that's the the success story of the show this week. Yeah, and well, and it's really the only place where you can say, "Hey, that's actually a good thing uh, to keep the discord going." But listeners, yeah. we we really do appreciate you supporting the podcast. You can become a Patreon supporter if you haven't done that already. It's really easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast a lot of levels of donation donation levels for our patreon campaign one of our favorites is the what can you buy for five dollar level and kevin i wanted to ask you that question this evening what could someone hypothetically buy for five bucks Uh, $5 would let you participate in the Adopt a Tumbleweed program. So, you know, it's not very active over at the offices of Adopt a Tumbleweed for maybe obvious reasons. But if you ever want to take one of those desiccated weeds and just kind of show show it a little bit of love and maybe have uh, something for when there's a lull in the conversation at a party, perhaps, then... $5 for your own tumbleweed seems like a pretty good deal. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really a good deal for a a fantastic joke, right? (laughs) I mean, it really is. If someone is talking and talking and then they stop and you do it, and it's just like, yeah, that's funny. That's comedy right there, and it's only 5 bucks. Um, You can also, listeners, instead of doing that, instead of the tumbleweed joke... (laughs) you can support us on patreon just go once again to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast yeah and five dollars isn't the only amount of money that will let you adopt tumbleweeds or support our patreon it also lets you become a member of christ and pop culture and one thing that we like to do at christ pop culture is give you free stuff or at least give you stuff in return for you passing some of your hard-earned dollars our way. And Wade, the member offering that is available for the month of November, it was just announced uh, this past Thursday, I believe. It sounds pretty good. It's a book. Um, It's called The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. It's written by Don Everts, and our own Timothy Thomas had this to say on the site. He says, Throughout the contents of this timely book, Everts provides straightforward, encouraging, clarifying, and convicting direction for the coy Christian on how to share our faith. Everts even takes the Christian witness a step further by insisting that spiritual conversations don't have to be pesky, painful, nor awkward, but they can be enjoyable, pleasant, and delightful. 
Throughout five very easy-to-read chapters, Everts reveals that witness really is as beautiful as the scriptures tell in Isaiah 52, 7. So that is a member offering that we have received from our partners at InterVarsity Press. If you become a member of Christ Pop Culture, not only do you get the pleasure of fostering further disagreements on seeing and believing, mm-hmm. but you also get a nifty free book. <laughs> I, that sounds like a great deal. It's a double, it's a two for one, uh, which I really, <laughs> I really do appreciate. Listeners, you can check that out, ChristandPopCulture.com. Once again, you can always send us a note about the episode. Just tweet us at Pod on Twitter or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Is anyone here? Suzanne? Felt like something had its hand on me. Felt like my wife. It just feels like she's still here. This is the room where the lights were flickering. I've been staying in here since Suzanne died. I want a camera in the parlor, one in the basement out back, and one in both of the upstairs bedrooms. People think ghosts are scary. I think it would be wonderful if they were real. We're back with the second half of our show. We're going to be hopefully moving on from the disagreement, although I'm not entirely sure where you stand on the movie we're about to talk about, Wade, but... I can always hope for harmony to to prosper in this second segment if it didn't exactly do that in the first segment. Yeah, I mean, I I want to like all the movies. I'm 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 a people pleaser by nature, so I guess that makes me a movie pleaser. So I want <laughs> I want to like all the movies, but sometimes I I just can't do it. But yes, I think that's going to ch- Kevin, I think that's going to change in this review. You, you, you think it's going to change in that you're going to not want to be happy about the movies you saw? or the, <laughs> I guess we'll just have to wait and yeah, see. Just, 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 I, yes, wait. But the, uh, the other thing, not that thing that you said. <laughs> the other thing. Right. One of the things. Yes, well, we're going to be talking about the latest film from director Paul Harrell here in the second segment. Light from Light is his follow-up to Something Anything, which, Wade, you and I reviewed way back in the early days of Seeing and Believing. And like Something Anything, Light from Light has a meditative cast of mind. Here's the film's official synopsis. Gifted with sometimes prophetic dreams and a lifelong interest in the paranormal, Sheila, played by Marin Ireland, is asked to investigate a potential haunting at a Tennessee farmhouse. It's there that she meets Richard, played by Jim Gaffigan, a recent widower who believes his wife may still be with him. That investigation that ensues, which eventually pulls in Sheila's son Owen and Owen's classmate Lucy, forces them to confront the mysteries of their own lives. Wade, you and I both found a lot to like about Something Anything. We appreciated Harold's ability to explore Christian faith and spirituality in elegant ways. My question for you is, does Harold find the same success in doing that with this film, or did you find yourself wishing for Something Anything again? Mm, that's a good one. No, I, I do like Something Anything. And it was fun, too, because... A little over four years ago, uh, Paul came on the show and talked about his film, and that was that was a really great experience to hear the behind the scenes look. And it was an extended conversation. We don't usually get that. Usually, it's like you know, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes. But it was an extended conversation, and I was so glad to be able to see this movie. And you know, it's. It's a really fantastic film, and I think it's better than something, anything. Just the meditative quality as well as the story and the reflective nature of this movie uh, is warm and inviting while at the same time being a bit mysterious. And Kevin, when we were talking to Paul, you mentioned Ozu and his filmography, and I remember Paul kind of perked up when you said that. And we love Ozu. I, I haven't seen as many Ozu films as you have, 
but there definitely seems to be that that same sort of stillness, that reflective quality in this picture and in Paul's entire work, where we are made to sort of lean in, to watch, to observe, to almost just absorb his films. And I think the same is, is true with, uh, with this movie. I, I'm curious to, to know your take. I, I know, I know the overall landing spot for you on this movie because you've, we've, we've briefly talked about this. Uh, but I'd like to hear more in depth on, of, of what you think about this movie. Yeah. Well, I am, I am glad that we're getting a chance to talk about this film finally in review form on the show because I'm going to put my cards on the table right here from the beginning. I think this is the best film I've seen so far this year. I, I, I just, I love this film. I think it's so wonderful. And it's, it's a, it's a, represents just a huge step forward, even from something anything for, for Harold as a director. I think that there's, um, this film is, you know, complex. Harold finds so much, uh, in the, in his visuals to explore the the themes that come out through the story in visual terms and i really appreciate that about this this film i think also the the ozu comparisons hold true for this one as well there are a couple of uh pillow shots in in this film which is a term that was used to describe ozu's habit of uh shooting say an object or sort of a still scene having that shot and then having a scene with you know characters talking or something else happening and then bookending that sequence with the same shot of that still object that happens at least once in this film and i i sat up straight when i saw it because it was like there it is and i was just very happy to see it so I've I've gushed a little bit about it. But now we can actually talk about the film in more specific terms. I really appreciate the way that Harold finds a way with the the tropes that we're kind of familiar with from this sort of story, the story of a, a ghost whisperer trying to communicate with the spirits of the departed, the attempts of people who have loved ones who have died to find some sort of closure by communicating with their ghosts. Those elements are all present in this film, but the way, the perspective that Harold takes on them, I guess, is really fresh, and I really appreciate it a lot, especially, I think, for Christian viewers who may not necessarily be on board with the common parlance of ghosts and ghost hunting and all of that. I think that they'll find a lot to appreciate in the way Harold inflects that story with uh, spiritual themes. So I, I really would like to actually dig into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's so much to sort of mine here. And I think the film does a fantastic job of just observing or at, or at least considering the temporary nature of of our existence here in in this life. And just the backbone of so many movies made today, even even films that consider life, death, eternity, have more of a foot in this life than than the next. Um, it's really kind of about coming to terms with loss or grief here and now. And the movie Light from Light suggests that it's not just about coping today, but there's this whole entire world that we we don't see, and yet we do see it. It's it's sort of this this shadow of what's happening here, and we're seeing some of that reflection now. But there's so much more behind all of that, and I think if you if you really kind of break down every scene. In this movie, all, all the kind of plot mechanics that are happening, they, they all combine to produce more than, than just you, you might expect. Uh, there's this, there's a scene where, and I don't even want to go into too much detail, but what, something happens to one character and it, it, at the time, 
it is life threatening, but there's, there's meaning attached to that entire event. And as a result, good comes of it for the future. And I think that this film is, is really trying to help us understand that there are mechanics in place and things happening that we don't know about. And in the end, they actually produce happiness and good that we could never really kind of explain or, or even expect. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of appreciate really digging into this movie. And it's one of those movies that's a joy to watch, but then it's also almost even a greater joy to think about, uh, after it's done. Well, one thing that, uh, I really appreciate about this film is kind of piggybacking off what you were talking about about the way that events in this in this film what grows out of certain plot developments is good that the characters could couldn't have predicted or or foreseen at all and that dovetails really nicely with the overall idea of searching for ghosts because part of it is dealing with the unknown you know, we don't necessarily know what comes after death. We don't know where our loved ones have gone after they are no longer with us here on Earth. And that kind of question leads to a certain measure of mystery. You know, it's one that the film doesn't really fully answer for us, right? Like, it doesn't say, you know, the afterlife is exactly like this. It kind of hints at it ob- obliquely, which is very compelling. But most of it is about uncertainty and about searching for answers and it's in that searching that Harold's characters find find their meaning and find a, a sort of peace not because they necessarily get conclusive answers that they that they want but because in searching they are changed in the attempt and they find themselves growing more uh in at peace with what has happened to them, what's in their past, and maybe even what's in their future. I love the final sequence of this film, and I don't want to get specific about it all because this movie has an ending that just laid me out flat. I think it's it's just wonderful. Maybe my, my favorite scene of the year, let alone my favorite film of the year. But the way that it concludes is essentially uh, one person in a room by themselves talking and in that moment Harold finds such a compelling and unexpected place for prayer to enter this movie and prayer for for characters who don't necessarily know what they themselves believe about god at one point uh you know uh Sheila is in a radio interview with somebody who's sort of interviewing her about her you know, her, her personal beliefs. And, uh, she's asked, you know, is she a skeptic? What does she believe? Would you consider that? Sorry, let me, let me back up. The interviewer asks her, asks her, would you consider yourself a believer or a skeptic? And Sheila's answer to that question is, I don't know what I am, which is both a great answer to that question and allows kind of ambiguity to flourish in terms of the way her character sees the events that will eventually unfold. But also it answers a different question, which is who do you think you are? What, like, how do you think of yourself? And that is also something that Sheila doesn't maybe know. And that suggests, I guess, that the character's relationship to the supernatural in this film isn't all just about them learning about the supernatural it's also about them learning about themselves and their relationship to the eternal and their place in the universe i think it's a wonderfully elegant way to explore that theme yeah and jim gaffigan was on uh, seth meyers and he briefly mentioned that uh in this particular culture in the south in tennessee where this takes place the idea of something being haunted or having some sort of presence is not as far-fetched as it is in a place like new york city and what paul seems to be doing here with that question of are you 
are you a skeptic? Are you a believer? Is throughout the film, when we're wrestling with, okay, well, is there, is there a ghost in this house or is there not a ghost? We're also wrestling with our expectations or our desires. What do I want to happen? Why do I want that to happen? And I guess obviously for me, you have this character uh, who is experiencing this grief and would love to speak to his wife again or to know that she's there. And so throughout the movie, I'm hoping, oh, I I really do want there to be a ghost in this place. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to follow the clues. Is there a ghost in this place? Because I want that. And I'm also thinking to myself, well, why do I want that? What are those reasons behind that? Uh, those motivations. And I think the film understands that, understands our motivations and our thought process. And I, I think too, uh, I mean, I would just, I would love for us to raise some money so Paul could shoot his next picture on film. Cause I really would love to see it, this picture in, in, on film. He has some really fantastic compositions and then even to, uh, symbolic compositions. So, We've talked about Asghar Farhadi, uh, one of our favorite uh, filmmakers, and his film about Ellie has that great image of these characters pushing a car on the beach. And it's a great composition, but it's also symbolic what we're seeing and what we're seeing happening on screen. And we get some of that here, and there's there's one scene in particular where they go to the great Smoky Mountain National Park, which is just fun because I love that park. That's one of my favorite national parks. And they go there and we get this great greenery and it's just really kind of beautiful. And it, it almost feels, um, it almost feels sort of ancient. Like it's always going to be there. We are very finite creatures, but this space, this, this sort of natural reservoir, it's, it's always going to be there. And then we see, an object and we're, we're already beginning to see the woods take over that object. And it's just this kind of powerful image of our time on earth and, and nature's time on earth. And it's, 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 it's strange because I, I would feel like in a, in a movie, another movie, it might be like, Hey, we're all kind of, you know, dust to dust. We're here one day and then we're just gone and life is over and that's it. But there's something, there's a texture in this image that seems to say that, that life just keeps on going. But that doesn't mean that our life is temporary here on earth, that there's, that there is something more. So I really appreciate that. And then also I'm a big fan of Jim Gaffigan, uh, being able to sort of write about him and then also being able to talk to him personally before and also being able to talk to his wife before and kind of understanding their faith and, and watching him make this transition to a dramatic performance. And he does a really great job here. It's, it's, I don't know, it's really cool to see that as well. Yeah, I agree with you about Gaffigan's performance. He just, he gives the sort of quiet, restrained performance that it just, it's not showy, but it's perfect for a, a man who has, you know, suffered a loss and who is trying to sort of hold on to himself and, and keep it together. Um, I really like the recurring visual motif of, of fog and mist. That shows up through this movie. One of the first images we see, in fact, is this car parked on the side of the road and it's just shrouded in mist because it both suggests this stasis, like these characters are sort of all kind of stuck in a place where they're not quite sure what they believe. Uh, Gaffigan's character is sort of stuck in this grief that he can't fully move on from until he gets some closure regarding his wife. Um, and so their stasis kind of mirrors the same sort of murkiness and, and stasis that you get from a foggy day. But also the thing about mist is it's transitory. It does pass on. And it's a really wonderful visual metaphor that Harold finds with that. And it also... um is something I think that's very intentional on, on his part as well. So I had the chance to see this film for the first time back in May at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. And we were lucky enough to have uh, Harold in attendance for a Q&A afterwards. Uh, both he and Gaffigan were there answering questions. And one thing that 
uh, Paul Harrell said was that place informs feeling in his films. And you really see that working itself out in Light from Light even more than in Something Anything in the way that he shoots these these exteriors and lets them speak to the internal state of the characters rather than needing those characters to tell each other how they how they feel. In a lot of ways, there's not a whole lot of actorly histrionics in this film, I guess. There's not a lot of big acting scenes because Harold has the confidence in his cast, not just Gaffigan, but uh Marin Ireland as Sheila is also just one of the best uh uh actress performances of the year in my opinion. But but they they both get very understated performances. Harold trusts them to get some of it across and he trusts in his setting and his cinematography to carry the rest. And I think needless to say it it succeeds with flying colors. Yeah, yeah, and there's this uh, this great line by Gaffigan where he he talks about how, you know, people think ghosts are scary. But what if they weren't? And the idea, like, what if ghosts were actually kind of this symbol of hope that, oh, yeah, we, like, we go on. And it's it's fascinating to see that kind of play out visually. I love the the farmhouse, just that setting in the movie. And it's it's kind of eerie, but I don't know. I don't know if I would say it's it's scary. And and I, I say that in a good way, because obviously we're talking about a benevolent type of ghost here, if one comes, and not super scary, hopefully, but also that still would be kind of scary. It would be kind of eerie. Uh, and I, I like the production design of this house and of this farmhouse. It just, it feels like there's history here. And it reminds me of, the Texas home in David Lowry's A Ghost Story. And there are a number of similarities between uh, this film and that film. And Lowry's actually an executive producer on this movie. But yeah, I mean, I think there's this, there's a great essay that could be written about A Ghost Story and about this and how someone, uh, Lowry, a, a self professed atheist makes this particular film and Harold, someone who's more tuned to to faith makes this movie and and how they kind of inform each other and what they look like uh, i i would love to read something about that but but it is it is really strange too some of the best movies in the last couple of years of uh, these two movies uh about a ghost uh, in, in a home possibly and um you know w- what that kind of means and what that says about life here on earth and, and life after earth yeah, Harold does something really interesting uh, in suggesting kind of the the existence of natural revelation, the idea that the world speaks of God as creator, even if it doesn't do so explicitly, and even if the people who are witnessing it don't necessarily believe in God's existence themselves— there, there's something about the the world around us that can reveal God to us, even if we aren't Christians and have never picked up a Bible in our lives. And Harold kind of extends that to the idea of ghosts, the idea that if people see some sort of unexplainable phenomenon, whether or not it's spiritual in nature, and that speaks to them of eternity, then isn't that a form of natural revelation itself that even though they're maybe closed off to the idea of worshiping God, that there are other ways that God can make himself known to them uh, through, through stuff like ghosts, through the yearning for ghosts. At one point, uh, one of the characters says things only matter if they last. And that's, sort of an example of Harold having these characters express that uh, eternity is written on the heart of man. And instead of making a very heavy handed statement about, you know, how we all desire to be near to God, he kind of just is very quiet about it as so many things in this film are quiet and just lets that sort of slowly express itself through the rest of his film so that when this final moment happens that we've been kind of dancing around, it's not necessarily 100% clear what we've just seen in terms of whether it's supernatural or not. But the important thing is that it says something to 
the characters who witness it as well. And it's just such a wonderfully ambiguous note to end the movie on. And it's an example, I guess, of doing ambiguity right, where ambiguous doesn't mean meaningless. It just means that you can make your own interpretation out of it. And Harold just threads that needle beautifully. Yes, I agree. Listeners, Light from Light is currently playing in select cinemas across the country. I'm not really sure if you're able to view it, uh, just because it is a limited release, but I would encourage you to check out the film's website on grasshopperfilm.com. And there's this uh, really great link at the bottom where you can figure out where to watch it. And it's it's really kind of all over the place, not necessarily in every big city, but in some smaller cities as well. So listeners, go to grasshopperfilm.com, find the film, and uh, find out if it's playing near you. And if it is, definitely go check it out. And then, you know, of course, let us know what you think about the movie. Kevin, we've reached the part of the episode where we suggest something from the world of television and or film to our listeners today. And uh, curious, after this ghost-centric episode, uh, what you are going to uh, <laughs> recommend uh, today. Oh, you you know I'm going to stick with the ghost theme here. So my recommendation is the 2007 film The Orphanage, directed by J.A. Bayona. And I'm not sure, I, I don't know if you've recommended this film on the show before, Wade. I feel like it's come up at some point. I, but I haven't because I've been meaning to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. And it was on my October list and I never, I, I didn't get to it, but I've heard so many good things about this movie. Okay, well, uh, consider this recommendation uh, for you as well, then, I guess. You and I both really liked Bayona's film, A Monster Calls, so uh, this is uh, an earlier film from him. It centers around a woman who uh, has happy memories of her childhood in an orphanage. She and her husband buy her old orphanage and convert it into a home for sick children, Unfortunately for them, there are some ghosts of children still uh, about the place, and they the haunting kind of begins to manifest itself in some frightening ways and also some very touching ways as well. I think one of the things that Biona does so well is sort of combining the, the warmth of human feeling with... Um, plot elements and themes that are a little bit darker or uh, a little bit more prickly, I guess, than than Family Fair. And The Orphanage is a great example of that. I think this was the film that really made his name, and for good reason. It's both scary as a ghost story, but it also has the same kind of heart behind it that you find in something like The Sixth Sense uh, or A Monster Calls. So I think it's it's a very fine ghost story if you're looking for something that's not quite as harrowing as some of the uh, scarier horror movies we've talked about on the show. But if you still want something a little bit spooky, this is the movie for you. Yeah, I, I it's on my list. I was trying to get to it this October, and um, yeah, it, different, it didn't happen. So I mentioned that, you know, were you going to go the ghost-centric route and I ultimately did not go that route, and I'll tell you why. So, this weekend, my brother is getting married, and so I have five siblings. He's the youngest one, and this is this is the last one getting married. So, it's this really fun time for our family, and so all of this is kind of on my mind, and it's a busy week, and I was thinking about wedding movies i just watched this again for the first time in a while it's a film that i really do like and maybe it's cliche but i really enjoy the 1991 film father of the bride directed by charles shire i have a soft spot for steve martin as an actor i think he's very very funny and i think he plays the role of a dad who talks this like big game, like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this or I'm never going to do that. But ultimately he has this just heart of Play-Doh uh, and kind of goes along with everything, uh, even after he gives all those, you know, strange and funny uh, facial expressions. So I'm not sure, Kevin, if how you feel about this movie or our listeners, but I I think it's really funny, and I, I really do like it. So uh, the 1991 version of Father of the Bride is my recommendation this week. 
You know, I, I have a lot of affection for that film as well. I, I think, of course, Steve Martin is really good in it and and good in a lot of way in a lot of different ways like it, it is a comedic film but he also uh finds dramatic notes to play as well that really sell sort of this this father who's a little bit neurotic but also you know deeply uh loves his his family uh and you know it's a pretty strong cast too martin short of course pops up as a hilarious wedding coordinator diane lane also plays the long-suffering wife of martin's character as well and she is also quite good and then of course the titular bride played by kimberly williams i think she she's also really good so yeah i i would watch that that movie all the time growing up i haven't seen it in a while but i i have a lot of affection for it yeah yeah no it's it's a fun one to revisit revisit and uh yeah just watched it again and so yeah it is it is a fun one and i had a had a good time revisiting it again listeners that is the end of our episode and I'm very excited about next week because next week we are going to be reviewing Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Fred Rogers, bi- I guess you could say biopic. It's not really a biopic, but it does star Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. And we also have a really great interview coming that's connected to that. We won't spoil that yet, but that's going to be really exciting. So all of that's all that's coming uh, next week. So be ready. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters. We love you guys and Christopopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.